From training to performing, join our Big League Conversation. Welcome to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast with your host, Eric Cressy. Welcome back to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Cressy, and this is episode 74. John O'Neill, our Director of Performance at Cressy Sports Performance Massachusetts, is going to be taking the lead today as a guest host. He's done a few episodes in the past, and they've been met with great reviews, so John's going to help out once again. His guest today is a guy named Ty Terrell. Uh, Ty is a super sharp guy when it comes to teaching movement. And what's cool about Ty is he's done it across multiple disciplines. He, he did a lot of work with baseball in the private sector, um, worked at Indianapolis Fitness and Sports Training with our friends Bill Hartman and Mike Robertson, did an awesome job there. And now he is an assistant strength and conditioning coach for the Atlanta Hawks where he works with a few other uh, good friend of mine from the past, Mike Err uh, from the University of Connecticut, as well as John Dussel, who, who interned for us at our Massachusetts facility before those guys went to the NBA. So lots of connections behind the scene. And what's great is John has a really strong relationship with Ty, where he's going to be able to ask some great questions and really pull the best out of him in this interview. So we're in for a really good one today. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. It's an all-in-one superfood supplement with 75 whole food sourced ingredients to support your body's nutritional needs across five critical areas. Energy, immunity, gut health, hormonal support, and healthy aging. I'm an avid user of Athletic Greens myself in spite of the fact that I tend to be a supplement minimalist. To me, this is a product that is much more like whole food nutritional insurance as opposed to a true supplement. The ingredients have been carefully selected at the highest quality, most natural source. You get essential vitamins and minerals, digestive enzymes, prebiotics, probiotics, and that's a zero compromise approach from the company. It's plant-based, sourced from whole foods at the highest quality, so you won't find harmful chemicals, artificial colors or flavors, preservatives or added sugar. Um, really, it's perfect for folks who are gluten and dairy-free, paleo, keto, vegan-friendly, um, great for people who are intermittent fasting, all that fun stuff. Um, personally, I love it for, for obviously our athletes who don't get enough nutritional uh, benefits from fruits and vegetables because they don't eat enough. So it's a way to kind of plug in holes in diets. But also, I really like it for our college and professional athletes who may have complex travel schedules where quality food options aren't always at hand. Um, on a personal level, I'm a husband, father of three, and an entrepreneur. Um, we split our time between two states, and, and I'm also still an avid lifter. Um, so life is inherently crazy, and it can be stressful, and sleep deprivation is definitely something that we encounter. So I rely on Athletic Greens um, for part of my immune support and believe firmly that it's, it's made a big difference in keeping me healthy in spite of how crazy our lifestyle is. Um, they've got a great offer in place. If you head to athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy, They'll get you 20 free travel packets with your purchase. Again, that's athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy, C-R-E-S-S-E-Y, and you can claim your special offer. What's up, guys? This is John O'Neill filling in for Eric Cressy. I'm the director of performance at CSP Massachusetts. This is my third guest host podcast, and today I'm really excited to be bringing on a friend of mine, a guy by the name of Ty Terrell. Um, a little backstory on my relationship with Ty and you know, one of the reasons I stay in touch with him and, and the, one of the reasons that he was on the, near the top of my list of people that I wanted to get on the podcast. Uh, so about five, six years ago at this point, probably about five years ago, I worked with a guy named Cody Benz and Cody was a good friend of Ty's. Um, and Cody would always tell me like, hey, you got to meet Ty, you got to meet Ty, you got to meet Ty. Uh, you guys would get along really well. You have interests in common, uh, you know, relatively somewhat similar backgrounds. Um, and so I had a chance to meet Ty at a course in 2017, and it was one of those things where I'm like, all right, well, I've been told for two years that I got to you know, talk to this guy, so I, I'm going to go up and introduce myself. Um, so kind of hit it off with Ty, um, wound up asking him a couple questions, and I don't know if you remember this, but he actually said, just like, email me, email me some questions. So I did. You know, a lot of times when you meet someone at a course, you might get like a quick response email, you might just get a conversation, that's it. Um, but I sent you an email, you sent me back like a longer one. It was like, Hey, let's jump on the, on a phone call. And I think ever since then, that was about three years, probably three years ago this month. Um, we've stayed in, you know, relatively close contact and you've been like a major resource for me in terms of you know, helping me figure out, you know, newer cutting edge stuff and any thoughts that I'm working through. You've always helped talk me through, whether it's like a 9 PM text or a, like this, a 9 AM 
uh, podcast that we're recording. So that just goes to show you what kind of guy Ty is. Um, and hopefully you guys as the audience can uh, get as much out of Ty in the next hour as I usually do. Um, Ty, can you give us a little bit about your background other than the couple minute spiel that I just gave on you? Yeah. Uh, first, I mean, I appreciate this. This is, you know, we were talking off, off air here, but, uh, I love doing this and especially with you, John, because it's, it's always a good conversation. Um, and I think there's always, you know, things to draw from and positive things to draw from that we both kind of leave and, and, uh, you know, kind of add or, or, you know, to our, our thought process or say, you know, I didn't look at something like that, or I'm going to start, you know, diving into this. So, uh, this is always beneficial, so I appreciate the invite. Um, the background, um, a little bit of a non-traditional background. I, I um, am currently finishing school. I'm 38 years old, so I've been doing this for a little decade or so, maybe more. I don't give or take, and uh, and I don't have a formal education. Um, I've just been incredibly fortunate and blessed to have uh, just awesome mentors like Lee Taft, uh, Bill Hartman. I've been influenced by people in the industry like like Eric, um, but even a ton from just, you know, network of friends and, and that list is long. Um, I started in a garage, a two car garage with Lee in, in my small hometown in Indiana. Um, that lasted a couple of years. We started a, I started to work for him. Um, I then started uh, working for myself, transitioned into a director position at a YMCA. Uh, found out that was not for me. And so then I went to IFAST, uh, Indianapolis Fitness and Sports Training with uh, Mike Robertson and Bill Hartman. Um, from there, I did a number of things. I, I worked uh, uh, speed camps around the country um, and um, uh, worked for a Division Two, kind of a Level Two uh, soccer team. Uh, it's formerly in the North American Soccer League. It was the Indy 11. Um, and now I'm currently uh, a performance coach at the Atlanta Hawks um, in basketball, but I still have a heart uh, for baseball, and, and, and I love the things that baseball presents from a training side, um, and so that's why I kind of stay in touch with it. So that's my that's my uh, diary right there. My uh, That's me in a nutshell professionally. Ty, so one of the things I'm curious about, I want to go back a little bit to near the beginning of that background. So I actually heard this on Lee Taft's podcast. Um, I listened or I re-listened to that uh, earlier this week just to get a feel for like good questions to ask you on this. And he mentioned um, how he basically or he, he I think his quote was he discovered you um, when you were coaching uh, first grade, uh, first grade basketball <laughs> at a camp. Um, and so that's a pretty long, uh, long or different route from, you know, to go from coaching first grade basketball to, you know, coaching on the performance side in the NBA. Um, and so I think, um, a lot of, a lot of coaches, younger coaches, whether it's, you know, strength conditioning or sports, they look at it as like, all right, I can coach kids, but I can't really coach pro guys. Um, I'm good. Mm -hmm. I'm good with adults, but I'm not good with this age group. Um, and I think we inherently look at these things as, as very different. Um, but you're, to me, you're one of those guys who like, you're a coach, no matter who you're coaching. And I'm sure you obviously differ your approach a little bit, but, um, what are the things that uh, you do that are the same, whether the person in front of you is eight, nine, 10 years old, you know, and very little experience, um, or they're, you know, 24 and making millions of dollars? What are the, the, the common concern, the consistent things that you do as a coach? I mean, I, I, I love this question because coaching is coaching. So there's some underlying mechanisms that just are universal in coaching and, and, there's an infinite list, I'm sure, and I, I don't know that I have like definites, but um, you know, I was coaching a, a a basketball camp, and I happened to be with this with this you know four, five, six year old group uh, who like Lee's daughter happened to be in that group, and so that's how you know we got to talking. But um, I still have to like you have to kind of tap into the person in front of you, right? You have to be genuinely interested in the person in front of you, no matter where you're at um, at the higher levels. Like these guys, they may have a lot of strings pulling on them uh, for various reasons. They may have people in their life that aren't there for, you know, you know, genuinely um, or they may, you know, it, it doesn't you don't know. But they need to know that, like, I am interested in them and their progress and what we have to do to maximize them. And that's that goes the same if I'm doing a boot camp and I have a 52 year old man that needs to lose 20 pounds. Like I am genuinely interested in helping you reach your goal. So. From the stuff that's underlying, like maybe your, your motivations or your mental approach, like those things should be consistent across the board. Now, I, I have a pretty simplistic model in how I look at uh, training for performance. So if it's like 
um, you know, I need, first of all, you know, our athletes, our people to be able just to do basic human movements well um, for a lot of reasons. Um, but from a performance standpoint, I mean, if you can go through the phases of a squat or, or you know, control the pelvis, um, you know, in all three planes right there, like that's going to ultimately result in good output um, in, in, in good movement, you know. And so um, that's kind of my model to start with. And so if it's an eight-year-old, I have to relate it to an eight-year-old, you know, and, and so we, we might do some fun things or we might do just three or four at a time and then go play, you know, you know, uh, you know, tag or dodgeball or, you know, what, you know, and then we come back and we do three more. So that may be how, you know, the, uh, you know, a class is structured there. If it's, you know, a higher level guy, we are trying to address something specifically because it's a limitation on the court or on the field or wherever. And so the the approach to that movement, that squat becomes a lot more focused and it has uh, more in, in the intent is a little bit different. Um, we are trying to, you know, reduce knee pain. We are trying to, you know, improve a vertical jump, an athletic stance, a defensive stance, the ability to change directions. Like, whereas a younger athlete, we're trying to develop. It's a very long term focus. It's a very fall in love with activity while we're learning to do things well. Um, and so. I would say my the the things that I'm working on and my underlying mechanisms, my motivations are um, similar across the board. How it's delivered to who's in front of me is going to you know differ depending on who's in front of me. Yeah, that's a, that's an awesome answer. And uh, so one thing that that reminds me of is uh, if uh, this is probably I don't know a year or two ago. I think when you first when you maybe your first year with the Hawks, but. Um, you told me that uh, you were grateful that you went into pro sports when you did versus maybe going in five, six, seven years ago. Um, can you mm -hmm. talk a little bit about uh, why you have that perspective? I think there's a big rush amongst coaches to get to the next level, get to the next level, get to the next level, whatever it is, um, whether they're trying to get a college job or a pro job, it's it's the faster they get there, the better it is. Um, you know, you're somebody with uh, you can correct me, but 13, 14 years of experience somewhere in that neighborhood. Yeah. Give it, give or take. Yeah. Yep. Um, uh, why, uh, uh, actually to just steal your quote, like why, why would you say you're grateful that you, uh, or it took so long for you to get to the level you're at right now? Um, the, there's, there's a couple of answers to that. The stakes are a little bit higher, uh, in pro sports. You are going to be, you know, judged by with, if this guy is able to perform like this or like that, you're going to be judged on, if you can play a role in getting an athlete to return uh, a few days, you know, sooner than he, you know, he normally might. Um, and so the, the um, it's, it's less safe to fail, I guess, at the, at the higher levels is, is the best way to, to put that for me. It's, you have to, you have to be ready in my opinion. Um, and so I had so much practical experience from so many different corners of our industry um, because of my path and because of the people that, that, that influenced me, um, I had this wide array, this, this, this large tool about toolbox, you know, to steal kind of a, an old, you know, term in our industry, um, of experiences of, of skills. And so when I, when I got to the NBA, um, I was able to say, Oh, I know this situation. I've done this a hundred times, or I've seen this before. And I'm able to identify like, Oh, you know, I, an athlete moves like this. I've seen that before. I know this is going to result in the inability to push off the right leg in a defensive stance as well or so forth you know and um or if we're talking about pitching you know like like you know i've seen a way that guy walks i've seen the way this guy lunges like i know his you know his push off the mound is going to be limited or his uh you know when his stride foot hits you know his hips are going to kick out and he's not going to be able to direct everything vertically then downhill um so things like that so i just had this 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 massive kind of you know, we talk like if you were doing research, you would you would want a large sample size to get a more accurate outcome in the research. Well, by because I coached for such a in the private sector and got a ton of reps before I actually entered pro sports, I had a large, you know, quote unquote, sample size of experiences. And I had just seen a lot of things um, now, you know, 10, 12, 13 years like that's that's a good amount of experience. But there are guys that are doing this. have been doing it for 20 and 30 years and, and they have even more. So they have a better sample size than I do, but I was able to jump in right away. And my number one rule for a coach, and it doesn't matter what, what you're coaching, whether it's, you know, soccer, you know, kids soccer or high school basketball or, you know, collegiate, you know, SEC baseball or whatever, like you need to first be useful. And 
if you don't know how to coach things and you don't know how to, you know, uh, modify and you don't even, I'm not, you don't even have to use like crazy science and programming. You just need to be able to coach and modify and relate to that person in front of you. Um, that's how you be useful first. So I talk to a lot of young coaches and they're like, you know, and, and I need, and they don't have a lot of experience or maybe they're lacking here or they're interested. Their ambitions are maybe misplaced. Um, I tell them all the time, you got to be useful. Like I wouldn't hire you unless you were useful. Cause I don't want to have to coach, do this job and do another job and trying to develop you. Now, if you're an intern or something like that, it's different, you know, uh, you, that you're there to be developed. You're there to learn. You're, it's, that's a safe place to fail. But if you're at a higher level and you're employed, I don't think that's a safe place to fail. So you need to be ready. Um, whereas like in the private sector, if I'm working with a group of 10 year olds, like as long as I'm not putting them in harm's way, I can do some, you know, try some things out and, and not maybe get incredible results. But like there's an there's a, um, an ability or a window to kind of explore stuff um, when you're in the private sector working with younger athletes. So uh, that's why I'm grateful, because I had this large sample size of experience. I was able to develop a, a wider skill set, uh, a better thought process before I got to you know the professional sports. And it has allowed me to make fewer mistakes. Um, and I still make some, but it has allowed me to make fewer mistakes and be more effective for these guys where days matter, weeks matter, um, you know, perception of what they can and cannot do matters. So you, you sometimes you're trying to change perception because that may mean a next contract. So there's a lot on the line uh, for those guys at that level. I think one of the messages in there, too, that uh, you, you kind of touched upon when you went through your background, but indirectly. Um, not all experience is created equal. And so mm -hmm. I'll use the, the research uh, study example uh, that you use. But if you have a large sample size and the large sample size, like, it just isn't quality, um, then, right. it doesn't, then it doesn't really matter. But obviously with your background and I know how progressive you are in terms of trying to learn new things and learn from other people and just following um, Lee and Bill, who you worked for from uh, or following those guys from afar. Um, you know that those guys are constantly improving and someone like yourself who worked with them for years um, is also most likely constantly improving. Um, mm -hmm. And so can you talk a little bit about, um, let's say when you, um, and you could give this answer, the five, five, 10 years ago answer versus the now answer. Um, when you learn new stuff, um, what is the process in your head that you go through to start incorporating that with your athletes? So it's, this is actually a great question, and and I think you the way you frame that I don't know if, like I think it's pretty wise the way you frame that because as as like five years ago, my ability to take in information and kind of know where it fits in the grand scheme of things and training or what and how I'm going to implement it was worse than it is now, and that's just experience, right? That's just you know, and the more I learn, the more I understand things, and so the more I understand things, the more you know, I can t I can see if this information, how it's going to fit and things like that, or if it's even information that's worthy of, of taking in or, um, you know, or you can see the pitfalls or the flaws in that. So um, the it just I have this kind of we all have this like every evolving thought process. But my pride, my model really hasn't I don't want to say it hasn't changed because it, it, I'm always wanting to make it better. But I pretty much stick to like basics. You know, I pretty much stick to fundamentals. I uh, you know, I pretty much, and, and Hey, these are, you know, this is science right here. And this is what I know, you know, is happening. I stick to the definites. Um, if we were talking physics, you would talk first principles. These are things that are absolutely, you know, we known. Um, and so when I take in new information, it has to kind of jive with that, with, with my knowns. Um, if it doesn't, a red flag goes up and I have to look into this a little bit more to see if this information is valid or not. Um, but it all kind of comes back to having really good, solid, like fundamentals uh, in your in your knowledge base, um, and that's why it's important, I think, to to you know to you know get around good mentors and get around good peers in our industry that can say uh, that's you know you know I call BS on this or this concept or I don't think what you say is happening is actually happening, um, and they challenge you in a good way. And you'll be able to, you know, you look into it, you can have a conversation, you study a little bit more and you say, oh, no, you're right. Like this is, you know, this is actually what's happening. And now my fundamentals change a little bit. They improved. They got a little bit better. So now my filter for incoming information improves. Uh, and so that's kind of things have to jive with my with my fundamentals 
um, that I know is happening. And so I, I, have a, I have a model for how the body moves, right? And if someone tells me this is what's happening in the body when I throw a baseball and it doesn't jive with my model, then I have to you know, peel back the layers and, and take a, you know, a deeper look into what's being said and what's in my model. So that's kind of the process. It happens. Um, it didn't happen intentionally in the beginning, but now that it's, you know, I've just kind of developed this, this, this train of thought, uh, or this way of going about things It happens just kind of inherent, like innately now. Um, and, and so, which is, you know, again, speaks to having experience and, you know, and, and, and spending time going through things and exploring and being willing to fail and, and so forth. Um, but yeah, that's kind of my thought process. It's a little, you know, a little vague, not very specific, but just uh, things have to jive with what you know to be true. And if they don't, then you have to review what you know to be true and the incoming information. I think a lot of times we get stuck on on our fundamentals and and we don't check on that side of things. We just we just go at the incoming information when maybe we should be checking both to to ensure that that you know, everything is good. Like if I have a son and he hits another, somebody else's son, like you can't, you know, you got to, you know, address both kids here. You, you know, you, you can't just say, well, it's all his fault. That's a, that's a really good analogy. I'm going to have to steal for, for all different contexts. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, you, you talk a little bit, uh, or you talked a lot about, you know, kind of having this model in your head of what movement should look like, whether it's, you know, basketball, baseball, it doesn't really matter if, you know, the person's an athlete or not. Uh, it's just human movement. Um, can you give us kind of a brief overview of, of what that model is in your head? Yeah, and it's just simple. And I got this from Lee a long time ago. But, you know, Lee would say you have to, you know, load to explode. I just simply say, you know, we're, we're going to load and unload. Um, like Bill Hartman is going to go, you know, load and propulsive. Um, so whatever term you want to say on that, I just keep it simple and say, uh, load and unload. Um, and so there are things that occur when you load, right? You, you turn into a hip, you know, the, the joints flex, you know, I've got, uh, ankle dorsiflexion, knee flexion, hip flexion. And, and again, you're rotating into a hip. Uh, so the trunk is rotating over that hip. So if I'm loading a right hip, I'm, I'm going to right trunk rotate. Um, and so that's, that's my model. It's real simple here. So if, if I see someone go into a cut or if I see someone uh, like a pitcher, you know, their stride foot hits and they can't load that front leg, they can't turn into that front leg, uh, then, you know, my red flag goes up. OK, well, what's happening? What are they doing and why can't they do that um, for the explode? Now we're talking about or the or the unload. Now we're talking about things like, you know, th these are really things that we train or we like to train our industry. Right. The the, the concentric outputs of it, you know extension based, you know, movements, um, and, you know, and rotating away from the pushing leg. So if it's, you know, I'm, if I'm pushing downhill or I'm unloading my, my leg that's on the rubber, you know, I'm going to push away from that spot, rotate my trunk away from that spot. Um, and, and vice in and, and the same goal as if I'm coming out of a cut, right. If I'm pushing left leg out of a cut, I'm pushing away from that spot, rotating away from that spot with my trunk. Um, and you know, and the joints get extended. Um, versus if you're loading the joints, they, they, they kind of fold up. Um, so I look at, you know, to kind of bridge off of that, you know, so that's why like one of the, I'm not making anything up here when I talk about the squat, but the way I see the squat is so important to my model because it demonstrates the ability to load and unload completely. Right. So if I call, you know, we don't have phone booths anymore. And occasionally I'll ask a guy, do you know what a phone booth is? And I'm, I'm, I'm only 38, but I'm starting to date myself here because a lot of, you know, a lot of these young, like they don't know, they've never seen a phone booth, but if you can squat in a phone booth, you know, meaning, you know, you don't pitch forward too far, you know, your head and shoulders aren't going too far to hit the glass in front of you. You're not kicking your butt out too far behind you. You're just kind of sitting straight down in this box. That means ankles, knees, hips can all bend like they're supposed to. That means your, your core, uh, you know, the, the trunk, the midsection right there is stabilizing all parts that connect to it like it's supposed to. And, you know, things are, we would call that proximal control, but things are in the position that we would ideally have them be in or else I wouldn't be able to sit all the way down. And then I wouldn't be able to have an effective stand up. Some people call that, you know, there are some aspects of this called, you know, the stretch shortening cycle. And that's been, you know, obviously an, an old term that's been around for a while, but there are just phases that you have to go through 
you know, when you go load to unload, you know, you have to, you know, eccentrically orient the body to load. That's kind of expanding. You know, like if I'm going to load my right hip, you know, I'm going to sink back into my right hip. You'll feel the back of my right hip kind of expand or eccentrically orient. If I need to stand up or explode, that's concentric. That's, you know, that's output, that's extension, you know, and, and so uh, a squat demonstrates the ability to do both of those actions. Um, and that's why it's so important to me. So that's kind of like my model. When I think about load and unload, uh, you have to be able to access certain joint positions. You have to be able to, uh, you know, do it at a certain speed or at certain forces. Um, and then to unload, you have to be able to, you know, again, reach certain joint positions, extension, et cetera, and do it at certain speeds and with certain forces if you want to be successful. That reminds me a lot. We had this conversation, I don't know, maybe two years ago, but um, just talking about evals and, and assessments and what the process is for that. And um, you talked a lot about having this, this backwards approach and other people in the field talk about it too. I just think that you, you describe it really well of, you know, if you're, if you're working with a pitcher, let's say, um, you know, maybe part of your eval is watching the kid pitch or watching video on the kid pitch and then backtracking. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas that a lot of times you're going to see a lot more or it's going to cue you into what or clue you into what the, you know, what the kid needs to work on. Um, can you talk about kind of, um, let's say you're, you're watching a right-handed pitcher and we can break down righties and lefties. Um, but let's say you're watching a right-handed pitcher. What are the kind of the big things that you're looking for throughout the delivery? Yeah. And so to me, again, I don't know if I'm just too simplistic or whatever, and I know there's <laughs> you know difference, but like, I just, it doesn't matter if they're right or left to me. Cause I'm sure. looking, you know, because, you know, kind of I talked about, you asked me a question earlier about <clears throat> coaching, you know, youth versus, you know, high level athletes, like there's underlying mechanisms, right? And to me, the way the body moves and the way it's designed to move is the underlying mechanism um, in any context, right? So whether it's I'm hitting, I'm, I'm cutting, I'm jumping, you know, I'm throwing left or right handed, there's still the, you know, the body's still designed to move a certain way. So that's consistent. That's the constant across all movements. The, the movement itself is the context in which the way our body moves is applied. So <clears throat> I just kind of strip it down to the simplest, you know, kind of simplest, you know, place I can go. And so if I'm breaking down a right-handed pitcher, I just, you know, what's, you know, there are certain phases of that, right? Like I want to know that they can first stand on their right leg, uh, you know, when they come into the, you know, the, the, the left hip flexion, they, or they bring their you know, their left leg up off the ground. I want to know that they can stand on their right leg. So I'm looking at, is the right hip kicking out? Are they leaning their shoulders back? Are they moving in any direction that takes them away from this nice vertical, I'm standing on my right leg, kind of like the same thing I talked about squatting in a phone booth. You should kind of be in this box. If you were looking at him, let's say he's, uh, um, you know, you're standing at first base and you were looking from the, at the back, the numbers on the back of the Jersey for a right-handed thrower, you should be able to see, you know, straight line, kind of the sky fit into a box. Um, if he's not, we need to examine that position. The great thing about the way, at least, at least I think it's great. Um, the way I look at some of this movement is that I don't necessarily have to understand, I want to, and I, and I work towards this, but I don't necessarily have to understand all this complex stuff. I just need to know that that pitcher needs to be able to stand on his leg like that. And so now your exercise, you know, your corrective exercise or your programming, you know, the exercises you're choosing, it becomes pretty simple. You try to recreate that, that position or that, that, that moment in an exercise and you just provide the more or less support based on what the athlete can do. So let's say it's that leg lift. I, and he doesn't do it well. So I may just simply have him put one arm against the wall, stand with his right leg straight and then do some leg lifts, you know, do some, bring his left knee up. If he can hold that at the top and maybe take a couple breaths and spend some time there. Now I'm going to give him less support, you know, and, and, and then move it more towards something dynamic in which is what he's going to do on the mound. So I, I kind of took it off, off course there, but that's how I just look at that moment. And then the mind immediately goes to, well, this is simple. I just, you know, design an exercise or create an exercise uh, that emulates that, that moment. Um, the second thing is, can they push, you know? So if I'm a right-handed pitcher, you know, how far I know um, stride length is an indicator uh, of, of, you know, throwing performance. And so, 
that athlete's ability or that pitcher's ability or, or you know, whoever it is, a shortstop or a pitcher, uh, the ability to push off the mound is going to tell me some things. So if I push off the rubber and I start to go, if I'm a right-handed pitcher and I start to kind of move towards third base with my body, that's a problem because now I've got directions going away from or, or my, the direction my body is not going towards the plate. And so now I'm going to have a loss of velocity because I have to use energy you know, to get it back on track. And so, you know, the, the, what's the, you know, the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. Well, that's, you know, let's say I have a finite amount of, of energy I can put into a throw. And if I go on a straight line, I can put all my energy into that straight line. But if I go right, then left, then straight, I've got energy going right, energy going left and energy to get me going straight. That's just, I have that. Now you have less energy into your, you know, into the ball. Um, and so, if he can't push off for distance, or then I'm looking at, you know, how much hip abduction does he have? Um, if he can't push off in a straight line, I'm looking at where is his center of gravity? You know, so, you know, people who kind of have a center of gravity, like if you just looked at somebody from the side and if they're kind of leaned forward ahead of like their, where their ankle would be, um, if you just drew a straight line up and they're ahead of that line, they have a forward center of gravity. So when I go to stand on my right leg and, 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 and go into my leg lift, my center of gravity, if it's forward, is going to take me towards third base or the third base line. So you may see me push that towards that way. So now we have to worry about address center of gravity, which could just be like good core work, good anterior core work, um, exercises that, that, that force you to reach, like one-arm cable presses or, or front planks or things like that. Um, and then you kind of you know, progress into more dynamic exercises. Um, also, I just may put two cones out in front of them and say, stay inside these two cones uh, and just create the path for the, for the pitcher. Um, so you, again, just kind of, this is, this can be a long, long talking point here, but you've got, can you stand on your right leg? Can you push off your right leg on a straight line? Now we've got the stride foot hitting so this is actually one of my favorite points. And there's old research that shows that the ability to transfer your horizontal forces, pushing off the mound into your vertical forces, uh, your stride foot hits and transfer those forces up into the body, into the ball, that that's a strong indicator of, of throwing performance. So now you have to say, okay, I have a left, if I'm a right-handed pitcher, I have a left stride foot that's going to hit the ground. It has to decelerate or stop my forward momentum. And it has to transfer that vertically. Well, now we're talking, that's basically just like a forward lunge. And, and so if you've got an athlete that's doing lunges or split squats and, or whatever, you know, single leg movement like that. And let's say it's a, just a stationary lunge. And I go down and I start to stand up. And you see that front leg, that, that loaded working leg. If you see that knee kind of kick back a little bit, meaning like the shin either gets vertical or behind the heel then that shows me an athlete that can't handle those forces. He can't push through his quad. He can't stabilize through his core and his hips so that that knee can stay exactly where it is and he can push vertically. I think it's a big deal because I think a lot of young pitchers, a lot of young athletes will show you that fault right there. So you can kind of see that this stuff is universal. And that's, that's part of the reason why I'm giving these kind of uh, other these examples like that you might see in the weight room or whatever, but to show that, uh, you know, movement is movement and you can assess someone's pitching or the ability to throw or swing in the weight room as much as you can on the mound. Um, so yeah, he stride foot hits the ability to decelerate, um, and transfer that, 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 you know, energy up. Um, if he cannot trunk rotate, you know, you're not going to have a lot of separation, um, so you're going to see a very like vertical, like extended arched back, uh, upper body if they can't separate. Um, so that tells you, you need to work on trunk rotation as a right-handed throw comes through. If you see like left side bending. So if they side bend or crunch down to the left, kind of towards first base, that tells me someone who can't rotate left into that front side of their body, into that front left hip. Um, and so now you need to work on that. Um, you know, and if they do that, if they side bend, it's going to elevate their right arm and it's not going to, so now I've got 
direction issues again, like I gave in the push-off example. Now I don't have all my energy going towards or all my momentum going towards the plate. I'm side bending left towards first base. It raises my right arm up in the air. And now I'm, but I'm still trying to get downhill towards the plate. So it's just like a really inefficient, ineffective way to use all the energy uh, that you've developed in that delivery. Um, so if I can't finish towards the plate, now I've got a, can I rotate left? Can I rotate into that front hip? And can I flex my trunk? Um, so those are the, you know, the training qualities that you would, uh, that you would attack. Um, so, and then that would be my assessment. And if you wanted to go onto the table and measure joint stuff, uh, to kind of confirm that you can, you can absolutely do that. Ty, that was awesome. I, I was really happy just to not say anything for, that was probably yeah, 12 plus minutes. Um, but I figured, I figured that would be a really detailed answer and, um, you made it really easy to picture each step, um, or I, I hope for, for the listeners as well, but, um, there's so many layers within that. Um, one, like the whole concept of starting with the, the skill, all right. And looking at the skill first mm-hmm. as the eval, which, which I kind of let off with the question, but then actually breaking down each, um, breaking down and people, you know, people want to look at it as like, as, you know, classic pitching mechanics, having this, this five-step approach. Um, or whatever it is, but this is really any, any kind of movement in sports. So if you know what the movement is supposed to look like, you can start to break down the individual moments. Mm -hmm. Um, but then from there, the, you know, simplifying the strategies of how you're going to attack the the moment. So like the first thing you're going to look at is the, can you, can you coach it on the mound? Like can a good pitching coach coach it on the mound? And then, and then then if they can't, like a lot of the stuff you were talking about of, you know, starting, starting more static and, and eventually getting dynamic, um, uh, starting with, with something that is, you know, exactly or supported, um, and then going unsupported, uh, something that's exactly like the moment they struggle with. And then being able to identify like, what are the critical moments in the delivery, um, that, that are the things that you need to attack. And also too, like, um, part of that is you mentioned like your, your first one of being able to like balance in the back leg and then load into it. Like if you can't do that correctly, uh, your chances of basically recovering, the path and then doing one of those later steps correctly is also going to be off. So oh, definitely, definitely. Uh, and so it is going to be somewhat of a linear process of what you're going to correct. Um, mm-hmm. You know, unless there's one that's just so egregious that you need to attack it first for health pers- from a health perspective. But um, right. Um, so one point to that, John, I, yeah. I, I add to that is just, I got some really good advice, uh, you know, really two points. And, and it was probably one, of, it was one of the first things that I was, I learned from Lee uh, and I, I still use it today and it's, it's literally one of the most, some of the most powerful advice, but it's also some of the simplest. He would always tell me, what do you want it to look like? So if you're trying to, you know, if you're trying to, whether you're assessing a throw or a swing or a lunge or whatever you're assessing, like, what do you want it to look like? And so now you, it, it puts the onus on you to develop a model of, Hey, what should this look like? And that could be you going and watching video or asking someone that's, that's a, you know, well honed, you know, in that area, um, you know, to help you develop a model of what it should look like. But then that's what your, your exercises, that's what drives your exercise selection. So if I need, like you said, like we'll use that balance, right leg balance example, and the guy, you know, the pitcher can't do it. I need to develop a, or not develop, but I need to give him an exercise that is more or less supported until it looks like what I want it to look like or what it needs to look like. And so you, what you're doing is you're the second part of the advice is you're just meeting the athlete where they're at. You give them as much support as they need to make the exercise look like what you want it to look like. And it's that simple. So it doesn't matter how you want to support it. I mean, we've got, you know, you can go on social media or the internet and find all these ways to do all these exercises, pick one or make your own up. It doesn't matter, but you, you make it look how you want it to look. And you give them as much or little support as you need to to make it look that way. Those are my two rules when I'm trying to coach a, a you know, a sports skill or any exercise, really, whether it's a squat, a lunge, or push up, or whatever. So that's kind of those are my those are my coaching rules. Can you talk about like within that? Because um, I know um, you know this isn't isn't to pick on PRI or any school of thought, but I know you're 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 very well versed in that set, in that stuff mm-hmm. uh, from your time at IFAS. Um, yep. And so let's just say, um, and to use a more general sense, uh, sense, let's say like uh, lower level activities. So things that aren't fast, aren't heavy, or, or don't become dynamic. Um, 
Can you talk about like a point maybe in your career where you would have leaned that way and now going back to older stuff that you've used in terms of simplifying stuff? Oh yeah, uh, for sure. And in my first couple of years at IFAST was, I was, I'm, I'm not a great learner. And, and so I, I, I don't read really like super well. Um, but I can take in information if it's, if it's active. So like if I'm seeing it being done or I'm doing it myself or, you know, something like that, I can take information in like that. So one of the, the blessings of, of going to IFAST is it's a very smart facility and not that they make you, they don't make you do anything, but there's a certain level that they operate at intellectually. And so that's exactly what I wanted and needed because that was, <clears throat> you know, I had gotten a ton of practical um, stuff from Lee and I needed more science. I needed to get to build that side of, of, of me as a coach. And so um, I went there and I dove headfirst into things like PRI and stuff like that. And so for the first couple of years, I'm, I'm leaning very heavily on that. One, because I'm learning it and so I want to use it. But, you know, two, as you're learning something in the beginning, you're getting super excited about it, right? And you think this is the best thing and this is, and it's not until over time that you gain perspective on when and where and why to use these, these tools that you're learning. So um, my first two years at IFAST, <clears throat> I did a ton of low level, um, what you might call intrinsic. So you're internalizing, you know, the, you know, the exercise, like, do you feel this here? Do you feel this there? That would be internalizing. Um, that slows things down because it forces you to, you know, kind of look inward and process, you know, what you're feeling and things like that. Sports is not intrinsic. It, it, it is, it is uh, something that you, it's reactive. And so I didn't make the connection at that point in time, but a lot of our athletes are people, while yes, they were moving a little bit better when it came to perform at, at high speeds or just anything dynamically, the the transfer from laying on the floor or being supported didn't come fully all the time. And so, and on top of that, while maybe they were able to access this hip motion or get more trunk rotation in a low level situation, the high level situation, the dynamic situation, the explosive situation was, was too much for the body. It exceeded the body's threshold um, to maintain that motion. And so I wasn't getting a performance and uh, like boost from that. And at the same time, when you're spending so much time doing low level stuff, you're not enhancing physiology, you're not enhancing output. So I'm not building force, I'm not building power. Um, <clears throat> not like in a way that would impact, you know, performance on the uh, in the game. So after two years, I got a little frustrated because I wanted to have a positive impact with the people I was working with. Um, while they felt better, uh, they moved a little bit better uh, in, in more controlled situations, more controlled movements. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, maybe they could do a lunge better, but it didn't transfer to their sprinting technique. Um, so I kind of had to put PRI in perspective at that point in time and, and say, OK, I need this. I like this. Uh, or at least the concept of, of corrective, like low level stuff. Um, but let's use it the amount that I need to use it, which was far less than I was using it. And let's put more emphasis on, uh, coaching dynamic stuff, finding strategies, uh, exercises, uh, progressions of exercises that would allow me to help develop an athlete, uh, dynamically. Um, that way now I'm addressing, you know, any type of like local joint movement or whatever pain with the low level stuff, I've got a system for progressively moving athletes through dynamic <clears throat> skills. And so now I'm getting to a point to where I can train performance. I can train output power and all those things. Um, <clears throat> and technically they're doing things better because they're learning to do them dynamically. Um, and so I'm raising the body's threshold or the athlete is raising the body's threshold of the ability to hold on to this motion or access this, 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 this joint range of motion during dynamic stuff. Um, and so that's kind of where I am now. And that's, that kind of started in the last two or three years I was at IFAST. I was at IFAST for about five years. Um, and results were a lot better. If I can just say that, you know, which they, which they always are like the pendulum swings all the way to the left and then all the way to the right. And the results are usually best when it settles somewhere in the middle. Um, and so that's when perspective occurs. And so I was able to, 
just through, you can call it failure, you can call it experience or whatever, but I was able to give perspective to the tools that I was using. Um, and that's not to pick on low level stuff or whatever. I mean, the same can be said for high level stuff. Like what if a guy or an athlete or girl, you know, has knee pain and every time you come back to high level stuff, that knee, knee pain flares up. Well, maybe you need to give priority to low level stuff for a little bit and give less priority to the high level stuff. So you just shift your focus based on, you know, what the athlete's body is telling you. I want to go back to uh, so when we were talking to pitching mechanic related stuff, um, and, mm-hmm. and you could probably, you know, speak to this as well on the, the NBA side. And so it doesn't have to be specifically baseball, but um, I don't want to give the impression to the listeners that we're trying to jam everybody into the exact same mechanics. Um, True. Because if you watch a watch any, doesn't matter what level baseball game actually, but specifically high level baseball, you, know, you rarely see two pitchers that do the exact same thing. Um, right. So, and some of it is is you know outside of the boxes that we talked about, but they're extremely high level performers. Um, so, how do you um, you know both theoretically on the baseball side, but also you know potentially a little bit on the NBA side? Um, how do you weigh you know someone who's a high level performer at their sport, but they do things that don't really quite <clears throat> fit your model, um, mm-hmm. but it helps them perform versus you know that long term health wise that might not be in the best interest of the athlete? Yeah. So this, I mean, this is this is the art of things. And this involves um, the relationship with the athlete, because if, you know, I I want to, you know, there are some pitchers out there and and I, you know, there are a couple that immediately come to my mind and I don't want to name names, but like where you're like, you know, I, I, man, I don't like the way he does that. Or that's, that could lead to an elbow or, you know, that's why he's so wild sometimes. Um, But this is the way this pitcher's done it. He's in the major league. So he's, immediately part of the elite. Um, and let's say he's doing really well. Um, so now he's in the elite of the elite and you're going to go to this athlete and you're going to say, you need to change. And the immediate human reaction to that is I'm one of the best, you know, 20 best pitchers in the world. Like, what do you mean I need to change? And I probably would have the same reaction too. So that's why the relationship part matters. So while yes, I have a model and there are these kind of buckets of mechanics that, you know, that you would like guys to fall into at certain positions of their, of their throw or their swing. Also understand that you can deviate from the, from that bucket a little bit and still be okay. Like if, you know, the orthopedic norm for hip motion is 40 degrees. So that's what the hip, that's how much the hip should move in this direction. Um, I'm just using an arbitrary term. Let's, you know, it can be IR or ER, but let's say it's, it's internal rotation of the hip. And let's say the norm is 40 or 45 degrees. Maybe for an explosive athlete, having 25 degrees is perfect. And so maybe that's, that's a sweet spot that still allows him to be explosive, but not develop a ton of wear and tear and it breaks down or not be so limited that this athlete can't access this position of his delivery or swing or cut. Um, so that's kind of the art of things and that you are allowed to deviate from that. The, but it takes time to know the athlete because <clears throat> let's say he, this uh, pitcher deviates from that spot. You know, let's say it's, you know, uh, he didn't push off towards straight towards home play and he kind of goes towards third, you know, and that, that means he has to kind of side bend back towards first base to get on a straight line. And let's say that it puts stress somewhere in the chain uh, more than others, right? And so you have to now ask, you know, talk to the pitcher, do you have a symptom? Do you feel like, you know, you know, you are, can be accurate with this is, you know, you can even look at some of the technologies that's used, like what's the spin rate on this? Is it where it's supposed to be? You can use some of that information to have a conversation with the athlete and say, I would like to improve this. Or you can say, you know, I don't want to take all of this away from you. So we're going to just, you know, maybe improve this shoulder motion a little bit or this hip motion a little bit. And we're going to keep working on these mechanics right here that we just kind of move him back to that bucket a little bit closer to that bucket, but maybe not all the way back. The other way to approach this is, let's say it's a starting pitcher. Maybe they pitch how they pitch because motor programs can be tough to reteach, you know, especially if a guy's been doing it for a long time. So if this, you know, if this movement pattern or this movement habit is how I've done it forever and I'm, I'm hell bent on staying with it, 
maybe days one through five of his off day is where you make the impact. You know, maybe you're getting him joint motion back right away. You know, maybe you're, you know, training him in on the table and in the weight room in a way that, you know, uh, can kind of bring him back closer to that bucket. So he's not, you know, moving every day of his life away, you know, so far away from that bucket that he's continuing to add more wear and tear uh, on his body. Um, honestly, the last example is a lot of the, the most common ones. Um, in my sport of basketball, I think it's a little bit easier than, than, than in baseball. Um, a guy, you know, it's pretty clear, like the joint, you know, the mechanics that a guy moves with, if they tend to show themselves on the court in a negative way or positive way. So like, if I can't sit, you know, low through my hips and, you know, bend at my ankles and my knees, and I try to guard you in an athletic stance, I have to lean forward with my trunk. So now I'm leaning towards the guy I'm guarding. Now that get, that makes it easier for him to go by me. So my, my, you know, weight is forward towards the guy I'm guarding, but I'm going to have to retreat and stay in front of him, which means I'm going to have to shift my weight backwards now to get you know in front of him. So I won't do that very well. Um, there's a consequence for that. You either don't play, uh, you know, you just continuously get beat. Um, and so we have to address that. So in my sport is a little bit different. I think, I think the, um, outcome is more clear in, in warrants addressing. I think in baseball, some of these guys are so stinking talented and they have found way their bodies are so smart. They have found ways to work around their movement flaws that in that motor pattern or program is so ingrained in their head because it's been refined over and over again. Um, you know, they're kind of like their superpowers kind of compensating, uh, the ability to compensate that, Maybe you just have to work with them on days one through five. And the truth is, there's no right answer. Like the, it, the right answer, this is why, again, I come back to the relationship part. You have to talk to that pitcher and you have to get on the same page. And you better have objective and subjective information to speak on with that pitcher or that hitter or whoever you're trying to work with. You can't just say, it can't just be your opinion. Um, and it has to, be, has to involve the athlete and you uh, in that conversation. And then you have to kind of figure out the strategy from there. Are we just going to be trying to, you know, uh, tend to you on your off days in between starts? Or are we going to try to give you a little bit more motion so we can do this a little bit better? Or are we going to try to change the whole thing? Um, obviously, each one of those takes a certain amount of time. Changing the whole thing takes a long time. Uh, changing it a little bit takes a little bit of time. And then just tending to him during the off days takes no time you just do it that's kind of the nuance in the art of coaching and it has to involve the athlete it has to be relational ty i could i could spend all morning asking questions listening to you but i, I do want to um shift gears a little bit uh just to mm -hmm. touch on something i was somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 minutes left okay. uh, but so i know you're you're very well versed in, in velocity-based training or vbt um, and you have, you know, you have a book on it. I've seen you present on it. Um, so you're, you're one of the guys in the field that, that people should go to to learn about PBT. Um, within that question, so you're in pro sports right now. Obviously, um, you know, analytics and data has become, you know, uh, so much more a part of the professional game in every sport mm -hmm. over the last probably five years or so. Um, can you talk a little bit about like any advice you would have for younger coaches as to what they should learn on the sports science side before they get before they try to get into pro sports. Yeah, and, and so my answer to this is a, is going to have it's going to be a little bit you can label it old school uh, <laughs> because like tech like the like tech is the advancements in our technologies that we can use in sports is outpacing our knowledge of the science behind the technology. And so what I mean by that is, is you can look at GPS data, data or you can, you know, do a, a load velocity profile uh, or use velocity based training. Um, or you can look at force time curves on a force plate. And if you don't understand the science behind all that stuff, you're just looking at numbers. And so a lot of this stuff uh, in sports science is not. And I ask, like, I've got a couple guys that I go to to help me and rarely do I get a definitive answer. I mean, rarely. And, and I try to pin them down for a definitive answer. So, for example, like if I'm doing a, um, 
uh, a force time uh, a force plate jump. And if you don't know what a force time curve, it's basically just you know how much force you're putting into the force plate raises the curve, or the more force, the the higher the curve, the less force, the lower the curve, and then it's throughout the time of you jumping on the force plate. So there's a there's kind of a model there's of 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 these. There's a couple different ways or a couple different models of force time curves that you see. And so I'm always asking this friend who's a PhD in this stuff, um, you know, what about this and what about that? And he's like, well, it depends, it depends. And, you know, you get frustrated because you're looking for definitive answers so that you can further your understanding. But the truth is you have to be able to dissect this technology or the, the data that this technology is giving you. You have to understand that um, if I'm looking at spin rate on a throw, is that good or bad in this situation? Because like, for example, I'll tell you like, so if I'm trying to throw a sinker in, in, a, in baseball and I have a lot of backspin on my ball. So if we're just looking, hey, spin rate is great on that. But backward spin keeps the ball in the air. It, it creates what they call lift force. And so your, your sinker may not sink as much as you want to if you have a lot of lift force. So now that ball, you know, maybe that ball sits in the strike zone a little bit more and, you know, and, you know, and then we can, you're probably turning your head and looking at the outfield wall. Uh, and once that guy hits that. And so it's like, it's, you know, so you have to understand the context of and the variables behind the science behind this technology. So that's, I don't know if that's a welcomed answer, but that's just the truth and reality. I mean, we look at our GPS data all the time. And if I don't understand the relation, if I don't understand what the game, the demands of the game and the flow of the game, and then the relationship of acceleration and power and all these things and distance and all that stuff. I don't, if I don't understand that stuff, I can't interpret that GPS data in a way that's going to be helpful. Um, I'm just looking at numbers at that point in time. And so um, that's what I recommend. Uh, you just And that takes time. I mean, it's not a fun answer. Um, and to be honest with you, if you're if you're, if you're, and I'm not trying to pick on young coaches because some of these young coaches coming out, they have so much access to tremendous information. They're starting in a place that, that I could never dream about that I started at. You know, I'm, I'm just kind of getting to that place now where they're starting. But what, what they don't have is experience, which means they don't have context um, with this data. So I would understand the science behind it in a major way. And that doesn't mean you learn the science then use the technology you use the technology to help teach you the science i used uh you know a gym aware for vbt i learned so much about physiology and physics by messing around the gym aware for three years and then looking at the data and then you know reevaluating athletes and seeing how this training stimulus impacted their force time curves or their force velocity curves and, and you know the ability to you know, produce force quickly. Did heavy lifting take away from that? Did it add to it, et cetera? Or did, you know, I did more, I included more jumps, more unloaded jumps. You know, did that change, uh, you know, the rate at which they can produce force or how powerful they can be? So um, use the technology to learn the science, but you better learn the science if you really, really want to be effective with that technology. And the best people that I know at using this technology understand the science. The ones that don't, are just giving me numbers that now I have to interpret. And that's just the, that's just the honest truth. And that makes a ton of sense. And it, it's actually, I know you said it was, or within that you said it was like not, you know, um, not welcoming to hear some version of that. Um, but in reality, I mean, that's, it, it actually is, I think it's very welcoming to someone like me or someone who's in the private sector and maybe doesn't have a ton of technology um, because it, it, there is an inherent sense of when someone's using something that you're not, that you're behind. Um, yeah. But if you can, you know, kind of yeah, you know, keep getting better at your own craft, whatever you have access to, when you do go to use the technology, it's only going to be easier. Mm-hmm. And honestly, like if you if you understand the science, like you may not even need the technology. And, and listen, we've had great training for a long time without the technology. You know, you, you, you kind of use your coaching now. You understand, you know, like, and we've been lifting, I'm not picking on lifting heavy, but let's just say we've been chasing a one, a one rep max for, you know, four months now or whatever. I don't, you know, pick a number, you know, pick a, a length, but you know what? You seem to be slower when you sprint. Well, there's a connection there and there are, there are adaptations that heavy lifting does to the body that can take away from speed stuff. And, you know, and then, and 
and there's, you know, pick any two kind of training stimuli that you want, but like some things, some training stimuluses oppose other qualities. Um, and so you have to find the balance. And I think if you are with an athlete for enough time, you get to see how their body responds to different training stimuli. You can learn about the science of adaptation and physiology and physics just by observing your athletes, but it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen quick. It, it happens slowly, unfortunately. But, um, you know, like if I've got a, a freshman in high school starting with me and I know they're probably going to be training with me through high school, that's four years of observation uh, that you get to do with that athlete and, uh, you know, apply your training system to them and see what happens and make note. Ty, I think this is probably the last question here, unless uh, you yep. say something that, that prompts another one. But um, so I know I don't know, I can't remember if you mentioned this in your background, but I know uh, you know you didn't go to school for this stuff or have like a four-year exercise science degree. And I think there are a lot of myself included, a lot of young uh, coaches in the field that you know the, the ease of access into the field is is easier than ever now. Um, and you see people you know without certain letters behind their name that are able to climb in the field a lot faster. Um, and they maybe would have been 10 years ago. Um, right. Can you uh, can you talk a little bit about um, any advice that you would give to younger coaches that are maybe um, that maybe don't have a background in this stuff about how you went about learning the science and, and what resources that you'd recommend? Yeah, I mean, it started with the environment that I was in, um, to be honest with you. It started with I had access to really smart people that could answer my questions and give, give good uh, or great guidance. Um, and so, um, that the environment that you put yourself in matters a ton. And there's a lot of coaches that are, you know, in a small town or a big town, wherever you are that, that don't have a, a network of friends, uh, in the industry, um, that maybe operate at a level that they want to be at or whatever, or, or, and so I would seek out another network. Um, that's, that's, you know, one that's going to help push you along. I would, I mean, I know this is sometimes an extreme situation, but I have seen professionals in industry stop what they're doing, stop their career and go do an internship at 27, 28, 29 years old. Um, and they're better off for it when they come out of that. And it takes them down a whole new exciting path. Um, you can read textbooks. I read, you know, I, I jumped in. I still read a lot of textbooks, but I also sought out people who could answer the questions of, I know this is what this says in the textbook, but what does this look like in the weight room, on the court, on the field? And so that's the biggest thing. Having people around you that can help you transfer or bridge the gap between the textbook and actual practical application or, or live performance. Um, that's my biggest advice because, you know, it goes back to something I said earlier about you have to be useful. If you can just write a, you know, make a post or whatever, you know, on social media, whatever about science, that's great. But if you can't apply it, understand how it's impacting the athlete in front of you and understand like what your training stimuli that you're giving to this athlete is going to result in four weeks from now or whatever. I know we can't be exact all the time, but you can, you know, one plus one equals two. We can be in the ballpark a little bit. If I apply stimulus A for X amount of weeks, I should expect outcome X, you know, um, and so getting in situations and having people around you that can help bridge the gap between the, the science, the text and, and what's happening on the court is my, uh, that's my best advice because that's how you're going to become more, the most useful as a coach, because now you're understanding the sport demands and the science and the cause and effect of what you're doing with the athlete. And that is huge. Ty, this was awesome. Uh, I think I was only able to ask maybe six, seven questions, um, yeah. which is which is great because the answers were really, uh, really detailed on all of them, and, and hopefully provoke uh, more questions um, from the listeners to go, you know, look things up or reach out to people, um, like you were saying. Um, mm -hmm. Where can John, I was, yeah, so I want to add one thing to that. Yeah. Like, I'm, you know, I'll graduate. Um, school for me has always been a problem, so I'll end up graduating um, here soon, and. I'm glad I went back and did school uh, because it formalized because that formal education actually filled in some gaps for my own learning. I think that still that plays a huge role in, in a coach's education is that formal education. Um, but it's not done there, I guess. So if I would like summarize that last question you had or, or add to that last question, like 
you know, you, the formal education matters. And I have found that out. Like I've had, a, I didn't think it did in the beginning. I could teach myself and so on, but I found out that it did matter. So I had to, you know, I've, I've gone back and I'll graduate uh, this year. So, um, but it was just the beginning. Like it's, it's just a platform that I build more knowledge on. Um, so that's kind of, I guess I would, I wanted to, cause I think it's an important note to say is that, you know, while, yeah, there's a ton of learning that can occur in the industry, like a formal education still matters. Cool. That's awesome there. Um, so last thing here, Ty, uh, where can, yeah, I know you're not a big social media guy, um, but you know, where can listeners uh, find out more about you or, or, or get in touch with you if they want to? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I've had a lot of people help me uh, and give me access without really anything in return. So I, I try to return the favor. Um, and so, you know, my email uh, just T Y L T E R R E L L at gmail.com. Um, you know, I, I, if, you know, I, we've all, we all are busy. So if you, you know, email me and, you know, give me a couple of days uh, to get it back. Um, I'm open to helping anyone I can. Um, and just kind of paying it forward for all the people that have, that have helped me. Um, so that's probably the best way. Um, I do have an Instagram account, uh, but I don't, I haven't posted anything in a, I don't even know, a couple of years or whatever. And, and so, uh, um, it's probably not worth going to, but so yeah, just the email is, the email is just the best. Awesome. Well, Ty, thanks for your time today. And, you know, maybe, uh, hopefully the listeners like it enough where we can get you on a second time. Beautiful. I appreciate it, John. All right. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd be thrilled if you'd consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving us a review to read on iTunes. We welcome your suggestions for future guests and questions. Just email EliteBaseballPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for your continued support, and we'll see you next episode.